Hello, traders. Thanks for joining us today on another Convergent Trader Spotlight. Uh, today, we're going to be speaking with Eric Townsend of Macro Voices, uh, my, my favorite podcast. I discovered Macro Voices sometime in the fall of last year, uh, and uh, it's been very, very enlightening. Uh, Eric is joining us today to uh, talk about uh, COVID-19, the markets, uh, crude oil, and several other things. Uh, we'll dig right in. As you always know, we want to dive right into the uh, the information. I want to remind everyone that derivatives trading is not suitable for all investors. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. Uh, the purpose of this discussion is to discuss the spread of COVID-19 and the ensuing market sell-off. Also to discuss uh, Eric's prediction of WTI crude below 32 and what he believes is going on in that contract. I found out that, uh, you know, in a Twitter discussion, the Twitter back and forth with him, uh, you know, I was talking about uh, crude potentially bouncing at 42, and he goes, uh-uh-uh, this thing's going into the 30s, buddy. And uh, the, the very next day, I believe, it just kind of fell through. Uh, so I want to find out what uh, what uh, he based that on. I'm very, very interested in that. Uh, but really, we want to talk about COVID-19. I think there's a lot of information out there and unfortunately, a lot of misinformation. And uh, Eric's been on top of this uh, for quite some time. Uh, so who is Eric Townsend? Uh, Eric is, uh, is, you know, if you're interested in his bio, you can go to macrovoices.com and on the left at the top, you can click on uh, read more and see his bio. It's very colorful. Uh, the guy's done a lot. Uh, he's a retired software entrepreneur turned hedge fund manager, uh, technologist with, uh, with um, an impact on uh, certain systems within Digital Equipment Corp, uh, Wells Fargo, and others. Uh, created and sold a Cushing Group, a tech consultancy firm that he sold in 1998. Uh, how timely, right before uh, right before the crash, uh, became his own investment manager and launched Fourth Turning Capital Management in 2013, which he has uh, now closed. He's uh, trading his own money now and hosts uh, Macro Voices podcast, which again can be found at macrovoices.com. Uh, one more thing, though, just to make sure our house is in order. An important disclosure, today's content and Eric's opinions are not investment advice. The presentation is for information and entertainment purposes only. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making important investment decisions. The opinions expressed on, sorry about that, on Convergent Trading uh, Trading's webinars are those of the uh the participants, Convergent Macro Voices, its producers, directors, owners, and guests shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented here. Again, derivatives trading is not suitable for all investors. We want you to be educated about what's going on. We certainly don't want you to just run off and place a trade based on what is being discussed here. Um, Eric, uh, are you with us? I'm with you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on on such short notice. I, I can hardly believe that uh, I just proposed this to you on Monday, and here we are Wednesday. Uh, you were managed to, to be able to pop in. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, let's start out by just briefly discussing what exactly is freaking this market out. 
I don't think the market is freaking out yet. I've actually been astonished at how slow the market has been to freak out. And uh, I'll be happy to admit I got this wrong in the beginning. On the 28th of January, I convinced myself that we were going to have a major, major market event because a global pandemic was an obvious certainty at that point. So I went out and bought all kinds of S&P puts with an expiry of February 14th. That was more than two weeks out at that point. And I figured within a week, you know, everybody's going to be on top of this. They're going to see it. Market's going to be crashing. That's it. Now, fortunately, I had the good sense when the market went the other way to take that position off and redeploy that capital before those puts expired worthless. And uh, I ended up buying puts on crude oil, which was uh, a much better trade to be in. And I got longer expiries. So uh, I, I got the move. But I think that the market has been incredibly slow to pick up on this. It's been clear since the end of January that a global pandemic uh, was coming, and it obviously raged all kinds of havoc in uh, China. Uh, it has moved on, and now the worst of it in Europe is in northern Italy, but the entire country of Italy is now locked down. The rest of Europe is about a week, week and a half behind. The United States is two weeks to three weeks behind that. And the worst part of this, and I'm, I'm really very frustrated by it, is the United States is incredibly badly prepared. Is, as recently as Tuesday this week, President Trump was still tweeting, you know, it's, it's going to go away on its own. It's nothing to worry about. Uh, he had previously told us it's just the flu. And, you know, he, at one point he actually said in a press briefing that, uh, that COVID-19 uh, has a lower case fatality rate than the seasonal flu. Uh, that's just plain wrong. And I think that's really going to hurt him. The Democrats are going to have a field day with that one come election time. Uh, finally, just today, Dr. Fauci, the, the, the uh, you know, chief doctor in, in charge, came out and said the COVID-19 is 10 times deadlier than the seasonal flu. That's wrong. Uh, the real number is between 28 and 55 times deadlier than the seasonal flu. And, and that's based on pretty darn uh, solid information. The, this case fatality rate for the seasonal flu is 0.07%. It does vary from one year to the next, but that's the, the long-term average. And the case fatality rate for any virus, a novel virus like this, is really not something you know with certainty until the end. But so far, right now, the World Health Organization is saying 3.4%. So that's 55 times more deadly than the seasonal flu. But and this is the part that very, very few people seem to understand. From a, uh, a humanitarian standpoint, obviously, we care about how many people die. But in terms of the economic impact that this is going to have, the number that's much, much more important is not the fatality rate, but actually what's called the serious complication rate. And the reason is the fatality rate's pretty darn low. I mean, even if it's 3.4%, that's, that's lots and lots of people are going to die. But it's not like the end of the world. If you, just today, the, uh, the authorities admitted that they expect at least one-third of all Americans to be infected with the virus. Oh, that my doesn't God. mean dying. That's just getting, you know, and for most people, it's going to be like the seasonal flu. You get sick for four or five days, you get a little fever, you get over it. It's not that big of a deal. Kids don't get it badly at all. Younger people are best off. It's men over 50, and particularly those that have uh, pre-existing conditions. Now, 
obesity is one of the, the risk factors. So the United States is going to have extra risk just because of that. But here's the really important point that I want our listeners to understand, because almost nobody's talking about it. The case, fatali the, the case fatality rate is like 3%, but the serious complication rate, that's the number of people that require hospitalization as part of their care, is 15 to 20%. So you figure one-third of all Americans get it. That's 100 million people. 15% of that, if we take the low end of the range, that's 15 million people are going to need hospitalization for this in the next three or four months. Guess what? There's only half a million hospital beds in the whole country. So what we're going to get to, and they're already there in Italy right now, is the point where the healthcare system is completely overwhelmed. They literally have to triage, which is a medical term that means basically dis make the difficult decision of who you're going to give help to and who you're going to turn away because you just don't have enough capacity to deal with more people. And one of the things that is being talked about is things like age limits where you say, uh, you know, we're, we're going to impose a, uh, a rule where people who are over 80, uh, sorry, we, we can't help you. We got to dedicate medical you know, care to younger people. So there's going to be some really crazy stuff coming. Now, that's, we don't know for certain when that's going to happen. A lot of estimates are saying around the first or second week of, uh, of May is when the hospital systems would all become overwhelmed. Uh, so that really is where the economic craziness is going to come in, is when you get to the point where the entire medical system, you know, you're in a car accident, you don't have any virus, you're in a car accident, you broke your arm because, you know, some guy hit you in a fender bender, and you can't go to the emergency room because, first of all, if you go anywhere near the hospital, you're going to get the virus because everybody's contagious, and even if you weren't concerned about getting it, they don't have room to help you because every bed is full of patients. That's what I think we're headed to, and that's what nobody seems to want to talk about. Now, it's, I know it sounds crazy. A lot of people are probably thinking, who is this nutcase guy? How'd you get him on the podcast? Look, what happened in China is they didn't take this seriously enough. This guy, Dr. Li Wen, uh, uh, Wenlang, I think, I'm probably mispronouncing that, licensed medical doctor, figures out there's going to be a pandemic, starts you know, raising the alarm bells, saying, hey, we, uh, we've got a, a real uh, problem here. Chinese government responds by arresting him, detaining him, and punishing him for the crime of spreading rumors. Uh, you know, that was not the right way to handle the doctor who correctly called what was going to happen. Uh, and they didn't take it seriously. They tried to brush it under the, the, you know, the carpet and not take it seriously. And before you know it, they're having to lock down every major city in their country because they had an out of control epidemic. Now, if you look at what Singapore and Hong Kong have been able to do, and to some extent also South Korea, they've been incredibly on top of this. Those governments have done a terrific job of staying ahead of the curve. They're very, very quickly going and very aggressively identifying everybody who's got it with very aggressive testing. They're trying to figure out uh, who they've, who else they've come into contact with, and they're really, really on top of things. In South Korea now, they figured out. Somebody said, "Hey, wait a minute! If we have people go to get tested, then they're going to get it from the other people in the waiting room. That won't work. 
we're going to have to create this drive-through system where you can drive up and you stay in your car and get tested for COVID-19. And then they deliver the test results automatically through a SMS text message to your phone. And what's more, there's a smart app for your phone that if there's anybody else near you who was tested positive, gives you a warning, like, be careful, you're in the vicinity of people who are contagious, you know, watch what you're doing. They came up with that technology, implemented all that in the matter of a couple of weeks. President of the United States tweeted just this week, yesterday, it's nothing to worry about. It's going to go away on its own. And the, the U.S., as of two weeks ago, had only done a grand total of 472 tests for COVID-19 by the CDC. Got to the point where the state and local authorities were so frustrated with CDC, they said, screw you, we're not going to wait for you any longer. We're going to do our own tests. At first, CDC wouldn't let them because of federal bureaucracy. Finally, now they're allowed to do it. We've only to date, as of right now, less than, I think a couple days ago, it was less than 5,000. I'm sure it's still less than 10,000 tests have actually been done. Well, it, this tiny little country of South Korea has done more than 100,000 tests and they have free drive up uh, testing with, with automated SMS delivery of results to your phone. The US is so far behind and I'm afraid we're gonna have more of a Wuhan, China kind of experience as opposed to a Daegu, South Korea experience. Already, so, Northern Italy, I'm sorry, I, I'm long-winded. Go ahead. So I just want to, you know, to, to, to go with that, I, you know, I mean, China put up a hospital in like a week. But um, what about uh, the fact that uh, President Xi uh, visited Wuhan, assuming that that's true, I don't know what to believe, uh, and and uh, the idea that actually it was safe enough for him to visit. Now, what does that mean? I'm not sure. The other part is um, I read uh, a news uh, article that was taught. It's really a news blurb that was talking about uh, the the turning or the reduction of new cases. I believe it was, it was in Singapore. Um, and and some other some of some parts of China. Uh, what do you make of that? Do you? It seems too quick for it to have topped out already in those areas. You know, Singapore's taken us very 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 seriously. Um, but is is that just kind of a the slowdown before you know the kind of the, the eye of the storm, the calm before the storm type type of thing? Or do you believe that uh, these uh, countries, uh, South Korea, Singapore, um, and, and uh, the, the heavily afflicted areas of China uh, have really got this thing under, under wraps. There's two aspects of this. First of all, we don't know. There could be a second wave coming. Often in viral uh, epidemics, there are waves. There could be another wave coming. But I, I think there's some factors that really work in those countries' favor. First of all, they went through the SARS epidemic in 2003. Their, their culture, their society is ready to take this stuff super seriously. I used to live in Hong Kong full time. And believe me, people understand and are very conscious of uh, public hygiene and, you know, touching elevator buttons and passing germs and so forth. People get it. Uh, they've been incredibly proactive about getting everybody into masks. One of the thing, one of the biggest pieces of misinformation in the United States is they're saying there's no need to wear masks. There is a very, very strong need, but everybody misunderstands it. The mask is not to prevent you from getting sick. The mask is in case you're sick and you don't know it. 
it prevents you from giving it to other people. So for the masks to really be effective, everybody has to be wearing a mask. And in the United States, we don't have enough masks because they didn't plan ahead for something like this. They don't have them. They've recognized they have a crisis. And what's happening is because the general public has been ahead of the federal government. Everybody's on you know, eBay and, and Amazon trying to buy up all the masks. There's none left for the healthcare workers. That's the reason they're spreading this disinformation that masks actually not only don't help, but might hurt the situation. In reality, it's very important for everyone in society to, to be wearing a mask, not so they won't get it, but so they won't transmit it to other people. They're doing that stuff in Hong Kong and in Singapore, and it's working. Uh, the other thing is there's two strains of this virus called L-type and S-type. We don't know exactly which one is in which place, but you know, you look at, boy, uh, look at what happened with the early case count uh, growth numbers in Singapore. It really looked like it was going to go out of control, but it wasn't that bad. It was not nearly as bad as feared. On the other hand, Daegu, South Korea, once that thing got going, seemed like nothing could stop it. Well, it could be that what we've got is different strains of the virus. The L strain, which is uh, what was in uh, uh, Wuhan, China, is the more aggressive, uh, spreads more quickly, uh, more, more deadly version of this. It may be that they had the S-type in Singapore, and that's the reason that, uh, that they were more easily able to contain it. We don't know that yet. But I think it's because those are countries that really have their act together. They did an excellent job in Singapore of contact tracing and quarantines and so forth. Meanwhile, in the United States, you've got people getting off of airplanes from Italy. They come down with symptoms. They go to the doctor. They get diagnosed and tested positive for COVID-19. Does anybody contact all the other people on that airplane? No. It, we know that this disease is its called asymptomatic transmission. You, you become contagious before you get any symptoms. So that guy that was on the plane, that got sick on the plane, he was contagious. He was infecting other people around him. Did the government or the airlines make any attempt to go contact those other passengers and say, hey, you need to get tested? Well, no reason to do that because they wouldn't be eligible to get tested because uh, the, the, there's all these crazy rules with the SEC, with the, uh, the the CDC that you can't get a test unless you've been to China. They just changed it finally to say an effective country. But at one point we had people coming back from Northern Italy and the criterion was you have to have been to China or you're not eligible for a test. And they're saying, I just came from a breakout zone for COVID-19 in Northern Italy. And they're like, yeah, but it wasn't China. So we're not going to test you. Actually, the United States is so far behind. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I just flew in uh, uh, Sunday. I was uh, I was on a trip, uh, a necessary trip, and I just flew in. And I remember the immigration, you know, that computer uh, that uh, that you you fill out all of your information and scan your passport and stuff. The only question it asked is if I was returning from China. It didn't re didn't ask if I returned from South Korea or Italy or any any other place. Uh, it's very interesting. So, well, there's also really big disinformation coming out. You know, pre the Vice President Pence told us we are now actively testing, you know, incoming flights from Europe. Well, it's it's sort of a truth, but it's it's a gross misrepresentation. It sounds like they're actually doing the PCR swab test and, you know, people make sure they don't have COVID-19. All they're doing in the airports is they're asking people, do you feel sick? No, I don't feel sick. Okay, continue on your way. That's it. That's that's the testing that's going on for people coming in from Italy, uh, you know, where there's a major breakout. 
and and they're saying we're testing everybody for COVID-19. You're not testing everybody. You're asking them if they're sick. Well, they're screening them, sort of, kind of, not really. But you're saying it's asymptomatic, so you're not going to feel it while you're being infectious. And I think in other areas, they use that forehead uh, thermometer to figure out if you have a temperature, which could be the result of many, many different things. I mean, many things give fevers. How bad is this thing, in your opinion, in terms of, um, I mean, you've kind of covered that a little bit, but really, how bad could this thing be realistically, not uh, kind of uh, in a panicked way, but if the U.S. gets its act together, which, gosh, I just feel like we have the wrong kind of leadership for that, uh, as demonstrated by many, many uh, releases uh, and press conferences and stuff, but how bad can this get? I mean, you said potentially, what is it, uh, 15, 15 million people, I think you said, could be uh, infected, something like that. Um, you might have said that. I don't remember. I wrote a number down. I didn't put the figure well, the, next to it. The infection with COVID-19, or it's actually SARS-CoV-2 is the virus. COVID-19 is the disease that it causes. So think of it sort of like HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, the COVID-19 disease, the good news and this is the the not so bad part, is the vast majority of people who get this are gonna have something that feels like a bad seasonal flu, and it's gonna last a week or two, and it's gonna be over, and they're gonna be fine after that. And furthermore, they're they're gonna have developed some immunity too, so it'll be harder to get it next time when it comes around next year, because this is not going away. It's not a one-time thing. It'll be with us for many, many years to come, forever, basically. The thing is, what everybody's focusing on is to reassure the public, look, it's not that bad. Most people, you know, only a very small percentage of people are going to die from this thing. That's true. It's absolutely true. What they leave out and don't tell you is a huge number of people. So we figure 100 million people in the United States are going to get the infection. For most of them, it's a bad common cold. It's just not a big deal. For about 15 million people total, they're going to have curable pneumonia. They need to be hospitalized for their pneumonia, and it's curable. But wait a minute. And pneumonia is pretty serious stuff. You don't want to be trying to treat that at home. You need to go to the hospital. Hospital's full. They can't take you. So what we're going to end up with is people who have curable pneumonia, they get told, look, you're going to have to do the best you can to fend for yourself at home. Now, certainly, we ought to try to provide them with ample antibiotics to treat this if they can't go to the hospital, right? Well, guess what? Almost 99%, I think the statistic is something like 96 or 97% of antibiotics in the United States are manufactured in China. And most of that manufacturing capacity was taken offline by their crisis. Now, hopefully they're coming back up to speed as they get through this and they're going back to work and they're going to be able to make more antibiotics to send over to us. They've already uh, sent a whole bunch of ventilators, which is the the machine that that helps you breathe in the hospital if you have serious pneumonia over to Italy from China uh, in order to help with the crisis there. So what you're what you're looking at in terms of, you know, is everybody going to die from this? No. Is it going to completely swamp the healthcare system and cause profound, profound economic dislocations that nobody has even thought about pricing into the market? Absolutely. Yes. Hmm. Okay, so let's switch gears here a little bit as time goes by. What are key factors to consider in a pandemic? Uh, I've heard you speaking on your podcast about 
R naught, uh, and other um, you know other factors. What 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 do we need to pay attention to as laymen? Okay, I'll I'll try to go through the the mumbo jumbo as quickly as I can. But remind me at the end. There's some several podcasts we've done where we go into you know spending hours of this stuff. But very briefly, if you hear R naught, what they're talking about is simply the how contagious is it index. What R naught means is if one person has this infection and they're contagious, on average, how many people are they going to give it to? So if you've got it and it's a certain contagiousness where you're going to give it to, uh, on average, about one other person, that's an R naught of one. If you would give it on average to two people, that's an R naught of two makes a huge difference because if you're just giving it to one person, that means each infected person passes it on, the, you know, the population doesn't get any bigger. But if you're giving it on average to two people, that's epidemic level kind of stuff because now every time it's passed on, it doubles the number of people that have it. We're looking at an r naught that's been estimated anywhere 2.5 is the very bottom of the range, but the latest studies and what I feel are the most uh, credible studies in terms of confirming them with what we're actually seeing in case count uh, growth rates are saying the R naught is between four and 6.6. That is just super duper contagious. So the thing about this thing is somebody gets it and it uh, it is believed to be not just droplet transmission, but also aerosol transmission. That means you cough. It's not, not just the guy that you coughed on who can get the infection. You, your, your cough, you know, little micro-sized uh, molecules go through the air conditioning duct and the guy in the next office down the hall can get infected from you. That's called aerosol transmission. Uh, it's still, at this point, we don't have the peer-reviewed studies that confirm for certain whether there's aerosol transmission, but it seems like circumstantial evidence pretty, suggests very strongly that there is. The way it was just so incredibly contagious on the cruise ships where they, they're famous for pumping a lot of the same air around different cabins uh, on the ships, that kind of confirms that there's probably aerosol transmission, which makes it just super duper contagious. So that's what the, the R naught stuff is. Case fatality rate and mortality rate are not the same thing. And this is one of those figures lie and liars figure stories. Case fatality rate means for a certain group of people, however many people actually get infected with this thing, what percentage of them are gonna die from it? That's called case fatality rate. And the World Health Organization estimates it at about 3.4%. So if 100,000 people uh, you know, get this thing, 3,400 people uh, are gonna die from it. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's about 30 to 50 times more deadly than the seasonal flu is, and the seasonal flu kills a lot of people every year. But uh, it's not the end of the world. It's not like SARS, which was a 10% case fatality rate. Now, the I forget what the guy's name was, Admiral something, U.S. military guy, went on TV the other day and said, now look, don't believe this 3.5% number that you've heard. The mortality rate for this thing is actually below 1%. Don't believe the 35 talk about us uh, something only a wall street guy would have said i don't know who this character is mortality rate doesn't mean the same thing as case fatality rate mortality rate means what percentage of the overall population is going to die so if you say the mortality rate is one percent that means one percent of the entire population of the country 
is going to die from it. So in the United States, that would be about 3.3 million people would die if it had a mortality rate of 1%. So mortality rate is against the whole population. Case fatality rate is against the people who actually have the disease. Um, the, the most important statistic is the one that nobody talks about, which is serious complication rate. The percentage of people who get the infection who are gonna need to be hospitalized for it. And that's about 15 to 20%. So right now, most experts, uh, there's one guy who's an epidemiologist from Harvard who says, uh, Mark Lipsich, he says 40 to 70% of the world population is going to get this infection sooner or later. Uh, the U.S. government is saying one-third, so that'd be 33%. They're, they're a little bit low. Let's go even lower than that to about 30% and say 100 million for the sake of even numbers in the United States. If that's how many get it, then uh, you're going to have about 15 million people that require hospitalization, and that is about 30 times more people requiring hospitalization than we have hospital beds in existence. So that's going to be where the really big problem is that nobody's talking about yet, is not people dying, but people who have curable pneumonia that can't get into the hospital because the hospital's full. Mm. Okay, just moving on. Um, markets, you're a trader. Where do you think this thing's heading on a best guess basis? Well, what's, you know, have we priced this thing in? I get the sneaky feeling that uh, we haven't, uh, given the impact it's had on China, uh, the, the the shipping industry, and so forth. Uh, the the movement of product or inventory around the planet's already been affected, and we don't see the numbers in terms of GDP and trade and so on. Where where do you think this is going to impact the market more more than it already has? Uh, I think that it's only just barely beginning to hit the tape. It's amazing to me that the market has not been able to anticipate this better. I think people are just in denial. They don't want to accept that a really big thing is happening. Uh, look at where Italy is right now, where the entire country is on lockdown and they've got major uh, health problems. They're, they're already at the point where their medical system is overwhelmed. They cannot take people who need care urgently into the hospital because the hospital's already full. I think that where we're headed is the rest of Europe is about a week and a half, two weeks behind Italy and will catch up very quickly. So all of Europe will be within two weeks in that same condition where there's, there's uh, you know, lockdowns, everybody who's able to just stay home is encouraged to do so. And one of the things you have to really figure in here is in China, as much as we like to think about how much better our society is and the freedom and liberty that we cherish, which I certainly believe in, I wouldn't want to give it up for anything. But the thing is, when you have to do a lockdown for medical reasons in China, it's not that big of a deal. The government tells you you're not allowed to go out of your house. Everybody stays in their house. If the government had to tell everyone in the United States, you're not allowed to leave your house. Bubba in Texas is well aware of his constitutional right to, to go wherever the hell he wants and take his guns with him. So, you know, I don't think you would have anything close to the degree of compliance that they had in China if you tried to do a nationwide lockdown. And I think that in order to uh, contain the spread of this incredibly infectious disease, that might very well become necessary 
not in the next week. It'll be the next couple of weeks in Europe. I think the U.S. is probably two to three weeks behind Europe. So as we get into April, I think that you've got really, really serious problems in the U.S. and things are shutting down. So, uh, and there's there's also other aspects of this that we haven't even uh, talked about that could cause people to just really shun travel. So you know, I, I think the, the reason I put most of my speculative bets on this on the crude oil market first of all it's what i trade primarily so i know the market well but the reason i really think crude oil gets hit is because nobody's going to want to travel or be able to travel and things are necessarily going to be shut down and in the crude oil market you've got this this physical problem that you don't just turn a switch and turn off the oil wells uh, they, they keep producing oil and it starts to pile up and first you fill up the storage tanks then you've got to use tanker ships we call it floating storage in order to contain that oil. You get into a super contango condition in the futures market uh, and front month prices just utterly plummet. So I'm actually trading this both in outrights uh, and in puts on front month crude oil prices, but also short calendar spreads because I think a super tango, a super contango will develop before this is over in the, the particularly the front end of the WTI futures curve. So uh, that's the way that I'm playing it. In general, the stock market has been the least effective way to play it. And I think the reason is everybody knows this is going to result in a whole bunch of government stimulus. And the stock market is conditioned to just translate stimulus means good for the market. They, they can't print penicillin. They can print money, but they can't print penicillin. And we're, we can't get it from China because that's where it's all manufactured. So we're going to have problems that central bank policy cannot solve. But so far, the stock market has been most resilient. If you wanted to make money anticipating that this was happening, you were much better to go long treasury futures and benefit from this just utter collapse in treasury yields or to go short crude oil. Those are much better trades than shorting the S&P, even though we had a big day on Monday. The other thing I would point out is in the 2008 crisis, there were something like nine days that to this day still stand in the list of the 20 biggest down days ever in the S&P. We had one that made the list on Monday this week. I think it was the first of many more to come. I don't think this is anywhere close to over, and I don't think that most market participants have even begun to, per to price in what's really coming. So I think there's a lot more coming, but I think the best trading opportunities are not so much the S&P, but rather crude oil. And uh, of course, crude oil has some special risks now associated with it. If Russia comes to the table, it would change the game, at least temporarily in, in crude oil. But uh, bonds are another trade where we're already getting pretty close to the zero bound. So it, it's a, a long and involved conversation, but I think there's lots of trades here. So, all right, I understand the super contangled part, but, and you did mention Russia at the end. You know, the, the 22 or 25% drop appeared to be a result of uh, non-agreement between OPEC and OPEC plus members, namely Saudi Arabia and Russia. Russia doesn't want to come into the fold with regards to uh, supply curbs and things like that. How much of that is factoring into what what is likely to happen with crude here? Russia seems to start to... Open, crack open the, the door a little bit um, in terms of coming back and talking about uh, potentially, you know, coming to an agreement. Where, where, what do you what information do you have that might uh, help support the price of oil versus 
I believe you had mentioned that it might get into the teens here as well, you know. Well, here's how I see this whole situation. Before the whole Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, fight happened uh, last week, uh, we had a daily close on Friday last week below 42 spot 36 on the weekly chart. That's just a really clear, okay, boy, we broke through a really major support level that's held for almost four years. It looked to me like the COVID-19 situation was going to take us to 26 bucks. It was a pretty darn clear target for me before all of this Russia-Saudi Arabia stuff even erupted. I thought that would take at least another month because so far things have played out very slowly and it's going to take a while before we really see the full impact of this. It won't peak in the United States until the middle of May that we really have the worst impact and the, you know, the, the, the real uh, peak of the, of the viral outbreak in the U.S. is going to be sometime in the middle of May. So I thought it was still a ways off. What happened is that move from 42, it was 41 spot 28 at the close on uh, Friday, down to 27.34 or whatever the, the low was. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew that was coming. I thought it was going to take a month. It ended up taking a few hours on Sunday night. Uh, that happened entirely because of this falling out between Mohammed bin Salman and the Russians. Uh, a lot of people seem, just in the last couple of days, uh, pretty heavyweight traders that I talked to tell me the rumor is a lot of people are getting skeptical. They think that these guys are just bluffing and this isn't going to last. Um, a lot of those guys have better information than I do, but I don't see any reason to think it's not going to last. I don't see why either side has an incentive to back away and lose face. For Russia to just come and say, oh, well, if you put it that way, okay, we're going to let Mohammed bin Salman, you know, basically uh, make Russia his bitch and we're going to come and do what they say. Uh, that's not the way Russians deal. I don't know if you've ever uh, dealt with Russians, but <laughs> they're not going to get pushed around that way. So I don't see Russia backing down. I don't see Mohammed bin Salman backing down and, and changing his mind. He, he would lose face in a major way. And I think the reason he did this is he knew that the COVID-19 situation was going to take us to 26 bucks. He could look like he had lost control of the market and have that happen, or he could make it look like it was his doing. And I think that one of the reasons he did this is because it basically brought that price move around instantly, and it makes it look like Mohammed bin Salman decided to make it happen. If it had happened over the next three or four weeks, it would have looked like he couldn't stop it from happening. So this way he appears to remain in control. I think he intended that. And I think that it's going to be a long schlock. Now, if Russia does come back to the table and say, okay, well, now that you put it that way, we, we really don't want these prices. We're willing to agree to a million and a half barrel uh, production cut that would instantly take us back up to the $41 level that we crashed from. But I then think that for all the same reasons that I thought it was going to take three or four weeks to play out, that over the next three or four weeks, we would come back down regardless of Russia and Saudi Arabia kissing and making up. Uh, I think we would end up coming back down to retest 2608, which was the, uh, the 2016 low. Uh, if you have both of those things, compounding each other at once. In other words, Russia and Saudi Arabia don't kiss up, kiss and make up. They stay in this, uh, this game of chicken that they're in. And the COVID-19 situation plays out the way I expect it to. That's what could get you into the teens. And, uh, you know, that's going to create some, 
some really scary uh, results. I do not believe that this was all designed to attack the U.S. shale industry, but the U.S. shale industry will definitely be collateral damage in a big way from this. Nobody's going to shut in any production, but it means no more new drilling until prices are a whole lot higher. Do you know off the top of your mind um, what the break-even price is for the U.S. shale industry? I think that number was going around a couple of years ago, but I don't remember what it was. I think it's pretty high. Yeah, it's it's constantly changing, and uh, I, people lie about it, too. Remember, there's two different prices. One is the actual cost of production, what some people call the, the shut-in threshold, the, the price at which, uh, you know, just the operating cost of running the electricity to pump the oil out and so forth. That's around 15 bucks a barrel. But the break-even where, you know, you recoup your investment and, and it makes sense to make a new investment in drilling a new well. Uh, that number used to be up around 60, 70 bucks. A lot of the shale guys want you to believe it's in the low to mid-30s because they want to be able to keep getting funding from Wall Street to drill their wells no matter what. I think the real number is closer to 45 or $50. Art Berman at artberman.com has done a lot of work on that. I'm sure you can find info on his website with you know graphs and charts estimating what the break-evens are for the various different uh, producers because it's different in the Permian versus the Bakken versus the Eagle right. and so forth. Right, yeah, yeah, it doesn't all cost the same. Okay, well, you covered the what are we likely, uh, where are we likely heading next and we're actually running into our time to just take some questions. Where can I learn more about COVID-19? Uh, the, there's, I've done several podcasts about this. So if you go to macrovoices.com, scroll down and look for hot topic number six. That's a rebroadcast of my interview with Dr. Chris Martinson back on January 30th, uh, just a couple days after I figured out what was going on here. We really covered the whole story then. And then after that rebroadcast, there's about a 20 minute update. And this was recorded March 2nd. So as of March 2nd, and I'm, I'm planning to do another podcast that ought to come out tomorrow. That'll be hot topic number seven on macrovoices.com, which uh, will have the update as of now with, with the, the latest and greatest information. There's also a panel that I did with several of the other guys on financial Twitter that, uh, that have had uh, you know, insights and, and so forth. Uh, Bianco Research, Jim Bianco, is one really strong follow on Twitter because he's got the best charts of anybody. That's hot topic number five. So hot topic number five, six, and uh, seven coming out tomorrow are the things to look at. And if you want the really, really long version, the deep version, George Gammon interviewed me on his uh, Rebel Capitalist YouTube channel. It was two parts, and I think it was like two hours in total. That was the most detailed interview I've ever done on any subject. So those are all places that you can find out more. Very cool. We'll put that in the show notes once we post the recording. Um, so wrapping up, uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, Macro Voices is a, is a huge favorite of mine. I'm a technical trader, started out as a scalper and expanded my time horizon starting 2005 and onwards when computers seem to be fighting at my level. And over time, especially over the last year or so, I've become much more interested in the global macro picture and kind of getting my head out of the charts a little bit. Um, so I really, really appreciate your podcast. It's probably the highest quality podcast I listen to in terms of the markets. Uh, and I want to make sure that those who are listening 
uh, support the podcast by going to macrovoices.com and hit the green donate button to uh, donate via PayPal. Or if you know of someone who's looking to sponsor a financial-based podcast or just to sponsor a podcast at all, uh, please go to macrovoices.com and just hit the contact button and let uh, Eric know. Uh, one uh, Another thing is I want to make sure that everyone here knows how they can contact you. Uh, Eric is on Twitter uh, at Eric S. Townsend. Again, the website is macrovoices.com and a podcast is uh, is on iTunes, Spotify, and so on. Uh, I, listen, I think I listened to it on Pocket Caster. So please go out and uh, and listen to it. You can also go to the website and subscribe to get notifications uh, and and articles and things like that. Um, let's uh, let's get Yoda on here. Yoda is helping me just keep things under control and see if there are any relevant questions um, to uh, to for Eric to address. Anything we hear? There are a lot of relevant questions. There's actually too many. We're not going to get through all of them, and I apologize right up front. Um, but let's get through some. Some some are asking if you have any opinions on the effect that this is going to have on gold and the cryptos. I think that, first of all, it's got to be super-duper bullish for gold in the long run because we're, we're going to need a huge amount of stimulus before this is over. We're, we're going to... Uh, you know, spend a whole lot of government money. It's in one way or another going to be monetized. It's going to be really, really bullish for gold in the long run. The thing is, I think it's a much bigger deal than most people are giving it credit for. And my message on gold is just remember what happened in 2008. Even though it was bullish for gold on a fundamental basis, what still happened is in a panic, in an in a actual market crash, Everybody is getting hit with margin calls, and they're forced to sell whatever they've got in order to meet their margin calls, and gold sold off hard along with stocks in the worst moments of 2008. I think there could be a repeat of that where gold sells off pretty hard. Now, that's only if we get an outright crash in the stock market. Maybe we won't have a crash because everybody's convinced that the stimulus is going to be so good for the stock market. I don't know. But if we get a stock market crash, which certainly under you know old school rules is what ought to happen here. I think it could really bring gold down because of those margin call demands, and it's an incredible buying opportunity. It's just a chance to buy gold on sale. What happened in 2008 was gold got taken down hard with stocks, but it bottomed before stocks bottomed, and its recovery was much, much more exuberant than stocks did. So I think that it could create uh, a really great buying opportunity at a lower price than we see in the current market, and I'm convinced it's going to take us much higher in the long run. Hmm. Sorry, there's some questions about the vaccine and whether you think they will develop a vaccine in the next few months and this will change the outlook. This goes back to liar's figure and figure's lie or whatever that expression is. There will be vaccines in the next two or three months. Yes, that's true. What they're not telling you, because a lot of companies that are trying to pimp their own stocks keep saying this stuff. What that means is those are vaccines, brand new experimental vaccines that are ready to begin the testing and clinical trial process, which takes a year. 
there's not going to be any vaccine that's available to the general public in order to stop you from getting coronavirus in at least a year. When, when people are talking about, well, this company has got this vaccine that's expected to be ready in you know seven weeks or whatever it is, that means it's ready to start going through the whole approval process. And a lot of them don't make it through. You know, the reason we do testing on rats or pigs or whatever it is that they, they do testing on is because sometimes the vaccine kills those animals and they say, don't use it on humans. Then they do use it on humans and they see how it goes. And sometimes there's complications and side effects that they have to scrap it and go to a different one. So there are vaccines that are certainly, you know, anybody in the in that business is working as hard as they possibly can to come up with a vaccine. Some of them will happen very quickly, but the, the misleading part is when it's ready, it means ready to begin testing and clinical trials. Hmm. Okay, it's not useful. Brad, a question for you. Will you be posting a copy of this webinar? Always. Uh, this will be distributed as soon as we can get it out. Uh, you should see it on Twitter. And uh, if you're on, since you're here, you will get a message saying that the recording's on. I know Eric covered a lot and is is just a lot of detail, so uh, we want to get it out as soon as possible. Okay. Next question: Someone was asking if you can refer them to any studies and/or books so they can understand how the second and third order impacts will play out for this pandemic. Boy, there's a whole. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to approach that. I don't know good books because I've been learning all about this in the last six weeks or so, and uh, I've been mostly, you know, going reading a lot of studies, but uh, I haven't had time or even tried to go and find books on the subject. Um, one guy to follow for sure on Twitter is uh, Dr. Mark Lipsich, I think is the way he pronounces it, M. Lipsich, L-I-P-S-I-C-H, I think. Uh, Harvard epidemiologist seems to be one of the most prolific guys. I don't know if he's written a book, but he seems like the kind of guy who probably has. Um, he's had a lot of uh, tweet threads. It's another guy called Dr. Eric Ding, who seems to be getting a huge amount of hassle from the medical community. He's like sort of kind of an epidemiologist, but not really a viral disease epidemiologist. So the viral disease guys don't like the fact that he's uh, tweeting as much as he is, because I guess they feel that he's out of his field. Um, okay, he, he knows more about it than I do, and he tweets more than anybody else. So he's certainly somebody that I've learned uh, a few things from, uh, even though I, he seems to be getting a lot of criticism from his peers. Uh, that's Dr. E-R-I-C-D-I-N-G on Twitter. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a website called The Lancet, L-A-N-C-E-T, and basically, uh, I, I'm assuming most of your listeners are familiar with the peer review process that uh, medical and scientific papers go through. We're kind of on an accelerated timeline where we can't wait for peer review. So they have, they're called preprint sites, websites that publish the, uh, the academic papers before they've been through the peer review process. One of them is called The Lancet. The first report there, which was uh, dated the 24th of January, uh, was the one that really persuaded me that we had a really big problem. But the, the most important two studies I know of are the uh, January 29th, the Ch uh, China Academy of Sciences uh, paper. That's the one that first uh, established r not as being more than four, and it also had some really chilling implications about uh, 
essentially saying the only way to contain this thing is to use the kind of draconian measures that were implemented in China. Then the Los Alamos National Laboratory in the United States did a study about two weeks after that, middle of February sometime. Really, really important study because they said R0 is even higher than anybody thinks it is at four point, uh, I think they said a range of 4.4 to 6.6, .6, something like that. Uh, that's just super duper contagious. But more importantly, they said in that study, that even with very aggressive containment measures, you could only bring, you could only mitigate the R0 down to about 2.5, which is still epidemic level of contagious. So really important uh, conclusions in that study. That was Los Alamos Laboratories. I don't know about books. Okay, okay. so um, we're over our time. We're approaching an hour. Uh, Yoda, is there a question that we can finish off with here? Um, there's, there's a lot, people are just wondering, um, this, you mentioned there's two strains and they're wondering if both strains have been identified in the United States. Uh, there's two strains, they're called L and S type, and it is only possible through genomic sequencing to know exactly which one you're dealing with. There have been some people who have tested positive for both. So there are some places where both strains are circulating. And um, I think, uh, this is fuzzy in my head, so you know, don't hold me to this one. I think it was a patient in the United States that tested positive for both strains, but he had just returned from Asia someplace. So it was an imported case, uh, which of course was the way it gets started. Um, so I think they can both be going on at once. One is the L type is more deadly and more contagious than the S type. And uh, I'm assuming that the L type, it, which we know for sure was the primary one in Wuhan, China, is probably what is uh, in northern uh, Italy right now. Hmm. Okay. Um, I think we need to uh, wrap up and uh, let everyone go and uh, let Eric back, get back to his business. Um, I want to wholeheartedly uh, thank you for taking the time, Eric, and uh, you're now a familiar voice in my morning jogs. Uh, so it's nice to be able to speak with you directly. I really appreciate you coming on. And thanks, everyone, for attending. Uh, again, please find Eric at macrovoices.com or Eric S. Townsend at, on Twitter. Uh, thank you all for attending, and we'll put out the recording as soon as possible. We'll keep uh, we'll keep tuned in to Macro Voices to learn the latest from you, Eric. Thanks for coming on. Take care. Okay, thanks for having me, and uh, stay tuned at MacroVoices.com, or just sign up for the uh, Macro Voices feed on iTunes. Cheers. Thank you.